Did y'all have a uh, good Thanksgiving? Busy doing what? No, I just have three shows and I'm working on right now. Wow. A lot of that. That's a lot. This should have been for a Thanksgiving break, which kind of annoys me. Um, welcome back. Remember this class thing that we do? Twice a week, most weeks? <laughs> what would you call it? Well, but that's because um, we have so infinitely much to do. Um, okay, so you guys talked about Kant and Kant or or Kant or or Kant. I don't know how to put this. Um, so what what all did you discuss? And it doesn't have to be you, but you you were certainly alert. <laughs> so, yeah, anyone? Kant. Kant. What about him? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah, Kenny. You talked about um, you talked about time and how it seems like time is integrally tied up in this concept of number. That doing that doing counting is something that has to happen in time in some sense. Uh huh. That like, that you know is, is it is it possible to conceive of a universe in which there is no time but there is counting? Yeah. Yeah, that the act of counting is is a consideration of succession, and if you, that time would be the way the human mind um, apprehends succession. Okay, yeah, Amanda. Uh, we also talked about the prisoners in the cave. Uh huh. In Plato, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, that's actually probably something we'll talk about again on Wednesday when we do the um, poem by Shelley Comment Blanc. Um, which is something that uh, I hope we'll prepare for a little bit today by talking about. I thought about assigning you, um, and I'm still going back and forth on it, um, so I may do it as a um, as supplementary reading for Wednesday, um, some passages from Kant, but we'll see um, where we get to today from Kant on the sublime, um, which is the third critique. So did you talk at all about the critical project? No. That that that's a way that that's a way that people have of saying no. They say, mm. um, okay. So basically, what Kant did, and what you read a little bit of. What did people think of the Kant, by the way? Hard and good, hard and bad, um, easy and bad, easy and good. At this point in time, I can't really say. <laughs> 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 yes, Jared. No, okay. Um, so he really is pretty much the greatest philosopher um, in the last, really since A.D., <laughs> uh, the greatest philosopher since Aristotle or so, um, and uh, worth really, really serious um, thought and really, really serious treatment. Um, so basically, uh, t just to situate him a little bit, um, the issues he's talking about um, and the issues he's really defined for everyone since Kant to talk about are issues that come up in such things as um, artificial intelligence and um, many, many things that, that come up around 
um, computer science stuff that comes up in Neuromancer. Um, but also things that come up in aesthetic philosophy and also in moral philosophy. Um, so Kant um, read Hume, who had read Descartes. And so in Descartes, what you have is something like the first description, this is what we were looking at, um, or the clearest description of a modern skeptical view towards the outside world. That is, the question is, what can we know? What, if anything, can we know? And how, if we can know anything, can we know it? And you'll recall that Descartes' answer is that we can know that we're thinking. Um, that on the basis of that, um, that we have an impossible to refute experience of thinking. We have a self-evident experience of thinking when we think about whether we're thinking or not. Um, that very fact means that we are thinking because we're thinking about that. On the basis of that, we can say that we exist. And from this, Descartes tries to prove the existence of the, the external world, to prove that um, we can rely on our senses and we can rely on other minds. Um, the latter part of Descartes' argument is iffier than the former part. Very few people will seriously deny um, the truth of a statement like, I think, therefore I am. Um, they may deny its relevance. They may deny its importance. They may deny um, the idea that you can draw anything from it. But, it's, but you can't seriously deny it, because to deny it would be um, to be engaging in it, to be doing the very thing that you're denying. Um, what Descartes tries to get from that, though, is not so easy to get. And um, what happened was, this is not, uh, not, a, um, not as simple as I'm about to make it, but um, simple enough, is that in the 18th century, the great English philosopher David Hume, um, in his treatise on human nature, um, was trying also to think about what it is that we know and what sorts of things can we put together with what we know. And Hume basically accepted something like the idea that there are thoughts, um, that there is such a thing as a mind that has thoughts, and that those thoughts are um, something that occur in the mind and that succeed each other thought after thought after thought. He said you can't really get beyond that, though. And in particular, what you can't do is talk about the coherence of any mental experiences. You can't show that they're coherent in any way. Um, all you can do is say that you're having the experiences as you're having them and that those experiences are things that we might imagine are coherent, just the way we imagine coherent. while we're... Coherent in what way? That they make sense, that, um, that two thoughts are connected to each other in some way um, more than the fact that we're having first one thought and then the next. So um, our idea of coherence is it's what dreams aren't. Um, when you wake up and you try to explain a dream, you're surprised. Um, it's one of the most frequent experiences of dreaming that we have is to be surprised that it makes no sense when we try to describe it to others. Um, and then we become aware that it makes no sense to us either. 
that it all seemed to make sense while we were dreaming. Um, but now, just that really obvious thing that um, an orange was um, making foreign policy in the wrong way um, suddenly doesn't make sense anymore. Um, but it seemed to make sense while we were dreaming. So we have, um, by contrast with our dreams, we have this notion of coherence, also of incoherence, um, where things seem to cohere, to come together, to form a sense-making composite, some larger sense-making structure um, than uh, simply having what William James will call a booming, buzzing confusion of thought. So William James says that the baby's experience of the world, the infant's experience of the world, the newborn's experience of the world, is one of a booming, buzzing confusion. That's his very famous phrase that you should be writing down and remembering. Um, booming, buzzing confusion. Um, and that what it means to become acquainted with the world is to reduce that booming, buzzing confusion to a kind of order, to see how things connect to each other and make sense to each other. William James, who was um, the greatest American psychologist, uh, the founder of modern psychology, pretty much. Um, so he has a really wonderful, still extremely important book called Principles of Psychology. It's a kind of two-volume textbook um, that he wrote in the 1890s um, and in which he treats really all the major categories of human experience in ways that are still very, very powerful. Um, so Hume, and James is strongly um, responding to Hume, Hume basically said we don't have any way of showing that our thoughts are coherent or that the I that thinks is a coherent thing. That is, you can say, I think, therefore I am. We already talked about this, but I'll repeat it. You can say, I think, therefore I am. But all you get out of that is that at, there is at some moment a subjective experience which is thinking about the fact that it's thinking. You can't get anything else out of that because it could very well be, not only could it be, um, but there's no reason to think that it isn't the case that all our thoughts are as incoherent as dream thoughts. All our experiences are as incoherent as dream experiences. And our sense of coherence is the same as our sense of coherence within a dream. That is, we imagine we're seeing connections. We imagine that the experiences we're having are connected to each other. But, there's, but we don't actually experience those connections. How could you experience a connection between things? There's experience, and then there's something that structures that experience and makes it seem to make sense. But those are separate things. If you experience something, then you're not experiencing the structure that seems to make it make sense. If you are thinking about that structure, that's not a structure you're experiencing. That's a structure that you only know, says Hume, or think you know, because you believe it's there, not because you actually have any experience of its being there. Um, and in particular, Hume was, um, went very deeply into the idea of, of what it means for something to cause something. 
So the idea of cause, of causal relations, of it being the case that a billiard ball moves because another billiard ball hits it and causes it to move. Um, Hume asks, and we could use the modern word, deconstructs the idea of cause to show that two things about the idea of cause. One, we can't see it. All we ever see are effects rather than causes. So we're assuming a cause without ever seeing such a thing. And we're assuming it in a kind of circular way. Because in order to say that a billiard ball causes another billiard ball to move, we already have to have the idea of cause and the idea that when we see something that we see as something causing another thing to happen, we get the idea of something causing another thing to happen as an effect of a cause. That is, that the idea that one thing causes another gives us the idea of a cause, the idea that something can cause something. But that, become, that comes out because something is causing us to have that idea. And the thing that's causing us to have that idea means that we're already assuming there is such a thing, and that therefore Hume says it's a circular argument. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's, kind of, it's like a pattern. I mean, yeah. if every time you, you can say, okay. Hume's word know. for pattern is constant conjunction. What we see is constant conjunction. So but, we see patterns. Yeah, and so that's, that's where we get our cause and effect. I mean, yeah. I, I How? Think, because constant conjunction causes us to think that it's cause. Right. Which but, is a circular but, argument. But even if, it's not, even if it's not cause, you can still say, well, look, at least so far in my experience, every single time a yeah. billiard ball has hit another one, the other one has moved. Yeah. Yeah. Did that cause it? Did it not? I don't know, but every single time this has happened, then this has. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's like the probability you were talking to, where we can't really know that there's a 50% chance we only know that through seeing the effect. Right. And so it's the same, that, there's the same faith in, in causal relationships that there is in probability. Yeah. Now, Hume actually raises a problem with that, um, and it's important that he does. But what, you are ba what, what the two of you are basically saying is what Hume himself says, which is that we get the idea of cause out of what he calls constant conjunction. And constant conjunction means that whenever we see A, we see B. And often it will also mean that whenever we see B, we see A. And we therefore decide that A is the cause of B, that A is always followed by B. Um, B never occurs without A having preceded it. A is always followed by B. These things are constantly conjoined with each other. And out of that idea of constant conjunction, um, we get the idea of cause. He says there are two other things that, that um, are included there. One is contiguity, that is A and B are together. It's not that every time a president is elected in a year ending with zero, someone tries to assassinate that president, which seemed to be true until um, Bush's election. Um, from Lincoln, I think it's from Lincoln to, to Bush in 2000, every president um, elected in a year zero an assassination attempt was made on that president. Um, but there's no contiguity there. That seems random. So even though there's constant conjunction, there's no con um, contiguity. And he says there's also resemblance. So there are three things 
that make us impose the idea of cause on an event. Um, but the most important one, the most basic one, is constant conjunction. Um, and that does seem like it has something to do with probability. Yeah? I just wanted to make a connection to logic. Um, I think what you're describing is the reason why it's the conditional is difficult for some people, because it doesn't actually capture the, the causal relationship as we understand it. Mm -hmm. um, through the patterns we see, it just describes a <coughs> scenario that would occur. Yeah. Um, and so it's really weird to think about how that logically you can't describe the cause connection or relationship the way we understand it as one thing affecting another thing you can just see yeah yeah, if you've taken logic, one of the, the first hard thing you will ever come upon in basic logic, I think this is the first hard thing you will come upon in basic logic, um, is how many people have taken basic logic? So when you learn about implication, that is, if A implies, a, a standard law of logic is the law of the, contra, uh, the contrapositive. If A implies B, then not B implies not A. Yeah. So that so those are so the truth tables work out the same. If A implies B, then not B implies not A. Um, so the idea of implication is really really important to logic. Um, one of the first and probably the first hard thing philosophically that you learn in logic is that logic is about formal and not about material implication. And material implication turns out to be something logic is not equipped to deal with. Now, in everyday life, we think in terms of material implication. That is, that's what physics is. That's what science is. That things um, materially cause other things to happen. Logic doesn't talk about that. And that's one of the first disappointments that people will often have about logic, is that logic simply will not discuss material implication um, and can't discuss it. Because then you're, then you're talking about reality rather than about the structure of reality, um, of how things must be in all universes and in all realities, um, which is what logic is about. Logic claims to be true no matter how the universe is constituted, logic would be true. Um, there are arguments against this, but um, the arguments against this are... Illogical? No, they're not. Well, they are, but that's not, that, that doesn't matter. Um, the arguments against it are arguments that um, only work if you accept that um, we understand it in theory but not in practice. We couldn't in practice understand what it would mean um, to be committed to something illogical. Yeah? Well, yeah, that's one, that is one problem with it. And it's, can you say more about induction? Because that's also Hume's argument. Or induction is like... Do you mean math induction or... Oh, like, like, like scientific Yeah, yeah, so say more. Yeah. Like, like, it seems to follow if you just 
have a ton of examples that it's all that all of are black, but like there would always be options that one group might not be black. Like, that's the yeah. point of like, science too. Like, it seems to follow that if you draw something, it will always fall, but like you can't be one hundred percent. Yeah, so an, exa so an example of this, um, there are some examples that actually have mattered in science, but um, the theoretical example that Hume gives is how do you know the sun will rise tomorrow? And everyone will say because it's risen every day of my life or it's risen um, in the entire historical record or it's risen in the entire physical record. You can see um, by looking at um, the fossil record of the world, um, which you can, by the way, um, you can see from the fossil record that the sun has been rising for billions of years since the origin of the fossil record. Not only can you do that, but you can also see the days used to be shorter um, from the fossil record, which physics also implies. Um, but the rotation of the Earth, do people know this? It's very slowly slowing down because of tidal forces. And if you look at the fossil record from because about... Tidal forces? Yeah. What? How? Like, friction, basically. Um, yeah, the same way the moon stopped. The reason the moon always shows one face to us is it didn't, it didn't just happen by chance, and it's not because God wanted it to. It's because it slowed down its spin over the course of a billion or two billion years until finally it stopped. And that's the reason Mercury only shows one face to the sun. Eventually, if, if planets last long enough, which they may not, they would, on, they would um, only show one face to the sun. Mercury being small and very near the sun, so hugely affected by the sun's gravity, stopped spinning earlier than any other planets. But if you look at the fossil record, you will see there are um, organisms that have a daily and a yearly cycle. And if you look at the daily cycle, you can see that, th that those organisms um, have gone through 440 daily cycles in each yearly cycle. Um, and then you can see them slowing down as the strata get higher. Um, so so um, the fossil record confirms this, um, despite what Senator Rubio says. Yeah? Um, just about Mercury, I'm pretty sure that Mercury is in a three-halves tidal lock. Like, we, we used to think that it was... Oh, really? It was totally tidal lock, but um, I think it's a three-halves. So what are the three-halves? I think it rotates three... It, it does... It rotates three times for every for two every for every two two every revolutions. Two yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. I, I seem to recall reading this up, but it, it's possible that I'm misremembering something else. Which is very very slow. So, but it would still be very slow, even if it hasn't yeah. stopped yet. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It, um, I think the way tidal locking tends to not just result in things that are totally locked with each other, yeah. but there are stable states. Where, where they're not yeah, totally locked. Really like small integer ratios. Yeah. Okay, but the moon is totally locked. Yeah. Um, so I didn't know that about Mercury. Spin? Sorry? Why do planets spin to begin with? Sorry, this is totally off Because there's no such thing as space. Um, because, they're, because they just get, they um, fall into each other. Interstellar dust falls into each other. It collapses. As it collapses, it goes spinning around itself. You know, you can see this in galactic formations. Um, that's why so many galaxies have two arms, is that as things fall, they're also kind of not falling directly at each other, but they're in orbit. Um, so the same sort of thing, when you have very large spaces and very small objects, they're attracted to each other by gravity, 
but they're not aimed perfectly at each other. They clump together, but as they clump together, they kind of they hook up as they as as they knock into each other and they spin. Um, and so everything is spinning. Um, but then the question is, so what stops it from spinning? And the answer is eventually tidal forces will stop it. Well, a tidal force is basically um, when the force of gravity, um, we idealize the force of gravity, rightly so. I mean, we do the calculations rightly when we're talking about rigid bodies. Um, as the center of a sphere to the center of another sphere that has gravitational relation to each other. Um, but that assumes the spheres are entirely rigid. If they're not entirely rigid, what will happen is the part of the sphere that's closer to an, attractive, an attracting body will be deformed outwards. Um, and also, that deformation will mean that the inside of the sphere will be spinning. Do you know how to tell if an egg is hard-boiled? You spin it. If it keeps moving, it's not. If it keeps moving, then it's a raw egg or a soft-boiled egg. But or if you spin it, dream. sorry, or yeah. you're in a dream. Um, yes! <laughs> if only they used eggs in Inception, it would have made so much more sense, or maybe so much less. Um, what is sense? You, so you spin an egg. Parts of a dollar. No, no, but this is what a tidal force is. You spin an egg. If you spin the egg and you stop it, and then let it go, and it starts spinning again, that means that it's a raw egg because the inside, because when you stop the outside, you didn't stop the inside. Um, with a hard-boiled egg, which is much more rigid, when you stop the outside, you do stop the inside. So there are tidal forces on a soft-boiled egg, but in this case, you could also reverse what the shell and, and what's inside. But there are tidal forces on a soft-boiled egg, you could say. Um, and those tidal forces mean that there's going to be shear and deformation between the inside and the outside. Um, if you were ever, God forbid, to approach a black hole, you know, people say, oh, we could go into a black hole and come out um, millions of parsecs away, and wouldn't that be great, like in BSG? Um, <laughs> the problem with black holes, that, isn't that the implication for how they do their jumps? All right, okay, I'm not going to get into the theology of BSG. Um, at any. Wait, wait, that's just like the great, you just said the greatest thing ever. I was watching it the other day and I was thinking about this class. Good. <laughs> Gaius was having his moment with number six and she was, you know, being her seductive self and then the fire and brimstone creature that she is. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just made me think about this class and all the contradictions that we talked about. And also I took philosophy of religion last year. Uh -huh. And so it was Professor Hirsch and we just read all these religious proofs. And then basically for an hour and 20 minutes twice a week, Cool, cool yes. <laughs> yeah, he loves he loves doing that. Uh, so, um, if you were to approach a black hole, you would be spun into a one-dimensional um, ribbon as you get close to it. That is, your feet would just be sucked out from under you as you get close, um, and the same tidal forces that cause the water in the world to go up by six feet when it's a full moon would um, pull you out into a million mile long ribbon uh, as you were being sucked into it. 
Um, so the greater the gravity, the greater the tidal forces, and tidal forces um, make huge, huge differences. Um, at any rate, that's what the, the moon and the Earth, the Earth has a stable orbit because we have a moon, and the moon is always facing the Earth because of tidal um, forces, and so we're in what's called a tidal lock. Um, <laughs> at any rate, um, there is lots of evidence that the sun has risen many, many, many billions of times, just when it was supposed to rise. So we could say that this pretty much shows that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. And Hume's answer to that is to say there's a huge difference between tomorrow morning and every morning that has ever occurred. Gigantic difference. You can imagine a bigger difference which is that every morning that's ever occurred belongs to one region of space-time, which we call the past, and tomorrow morning doesn't. And so there is no way to know that what will happen tomorrow is going to look like what's already happened. But you can't tell, you can't tell them that, that, well, yesterday in a day will be the past. You're already assuming what you want to prove, which is that <laughs> things will continue going as they have gone, which is fine about the past, but not fine about the future because it hasn't happened yet, so it's radically different from anything that has happened. That is, and by radically, I don't mean to say that we can say, oh my gosh, it's so different. It's like comparing apples and oranges. It's so different that we don't know what it's like, what that difference would be. So, so, so not only can't we know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow, says Hume, we can't even give a probability that it's going to rise tomorrow. We can't even say it's almost certain. We can say that psychologically, everyone knows it will, but we can't say it rationally or logically or philosophically. Yeah. Couldn't you say that because of the definitions, tomorrow will not occur until and unless the sun rises again? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so probably. So the question is, do we know that there's going to be a, a tomorrow in the universe? Um, and the answer Hume will say is no. And, he, and he's also going to say, no one believes this. No one will accept it. He even says, you know, when I think about this, when I'm doing philosophy and I think about this stuff, it freaks me out. Then I go and actually play billiards, and I think the philosophy just makes no sense while I'm playing billiards. And it's a good thing to play billiards. Um, so you can't, so Hume is really interested in thoughts that it's very hard to think. Um, we know the sun will rise, and yet there is no philosophical justification for our saying that we know that. Sorry? Well, it's an argument that he makes over and over again. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's really radically undercuts all philosophical pretensions. Um, yeah, Luca. But this is basically the same as what we were talking about, I don't even know, weeks ago. With Goyles and... You're like, all right, so you have a TV where there are shows that some are millions of years long, some are yeah. a second long. How much longer do you know it's going to go on right. for? Right, yeah. Well, yeah. you know, it could end the second you turn it on, but if it's gone on for, you know, billions of years, there's a 90% well, a chance that you're somewhere kind of in the middle. Yeah, but that's, again, assuming a stable universe. That is, the time will go on for 
another instant, which we don't know. Can't well, know. So far. Yeah, so he's questioning. So, well, you know, not, Steve. Not like our concepts of reality, he's questioning like space time. That yeah. Time. Yes. Yeah. As Stephen Wright um, once said, uh, I plan to live forever. So far, it's working. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, there are ways that people try to make that claim. That is to say that if you can um, see how things are going on, that is, um, some people have tried to argue against Hume, and the radical Humean won't permit this, but some people have tried to argue against Hume by saying, um, once we know the science, then we can see the continuity of the event. And so there are, there are really interesting, I mean, Hume has, like any great philosopher, um, Hume has, like Zeno, who will be our go-to guy for this, um, Hume's uh, questions have provoked really deep thinking in attempts, some of them successful, to answer those questions. Um, so it's not so much, no one really thinks that Hume is right. Um, people do think he's right about economics, by the way, though, and also about moral philosophy. There he says some things that... Um, in a lot of ways, a lot of people still accept. I was reading Paul Krugman the other day, who said that the first serious um, economic essay ever was was one by David Hume, and he's actually linked to it a few times in the last uh, week or so. Um, but um, the questions Hume raises um, give rise to really interesting thinking. One is what an event is. That is, so that if you say something like, look, it may be the case that uh, we don't know, although we can guess, we don't know why pulsars are pulsing and we don't know that they'll continue pulsing. But we do know why the sun rises tomorrow because we can give a complete description of a continuous thing that's occurring um, between now and tomorrow. Um, and it may be that, therefore, what's sometimes called the ontology of events enables us to name something as an event rather than simply as a bunch of things one following upon another. That is actually going to be something like Kant's answer to Hume. Um, so we know that if you cut an apple, it's going to be smaller. We know why the Earth spins in such a way that the sun will rise tomorrow. Um, and knowing that, we can say, no, it's not something that occurs successively. That is, this happened, and then a little bit later, this happened, and then a little bit later, this happened, um, and now we have a pattern. Kafka has a great parable called Leopards in the Temple. Do people know this? Um, Kafka's parables are the best. Um, and so he has one called Leopards in the Temple, which is that um, there's some priests who are performing a ceremony, and one day some leopards break into the temple while they're performing the ceremony. Um, the priests are disturbed by this, but... Um, but they put it out of their minds, but the next day the same thing happens, and the next day the same thing happens again, and after a while the priests make the leopards part of the ceremony. So that's the whole parable. Um, and so they don't know why the leopards are breaking in, but now you have something which is part of the ceremony, um, namely that these leopards are breaking in. Um, there we don't know why it happens, but in some cases it seems that we do, like why the sun rises. But then we also have radioactive decay, so radioactive decay is something that happens with extreme predictability. No one knows why it happens, 
um, which is unless you want to say people do know why it happens, which is you have an unstable element that decays. But then that changes the definition of what knowing and why and something and happening is. All those words change their meaning a little bit. Um, but what happens is you have a neutron that, or, yeah, a neutron that suddenly turns into a proton and an electron, um, to use a very simplistic example. Um, so what causes it to happen? Nothing except time and probability. That is, it's just stuff that happens. Do protons decay? Um, scientists don't know. There's a theory, or at least there used to be, that all matter decays, and that protons may have such a long half-life that the experience that no one has ever seen proton decay. Uh, that protons may have may have half-lives of of tens of trillions of years, or hundreds of trillions of years, much much longer than the universe. So maybe we haven't been around enough to see a proton decay, and that would mean that you look at a proton. And you think, ah, I've watched this proton for a really long time and it hasn't decayed. Therefore, protons don't decay. One of the jokes, you know the jokes about how um, asking people to, to boil some water. And so, um, you know these science geek jokes? No? Oh, you know some of them. How do you tell the, how do you tell the height of a building with a barometer so the meteorologist... Um, does the air pressure at the bottom of the building or the top of the building and figures out from the difference in air pressure. Um, the, ge the, ge the geometer measures the height of the barometer and then sees how many barometers tall the building is. The economist goes to the owner of the building and says, if you tell me the height of your building, I will give you a good barometer. <laughs> Um, and the physicist goes to the top of the building and drops the barometer and sees how long it takes to hit the ground. So these are, these are all hilarious if you're <laughs> the right kind of person, um, <laughs> which I thought some of you were, but maybe not. Um, so one of them is the chemist and the mathematician are assigned, um, are given um, a kitchen in which is a pot and a sink and a stove and are asked to boil a pot of water. So they both come up with the same solution, which is they, they take the pot off its hook on the wall, fill it with water, put it on the stove, watch the water boil, um, and then they boil the water. They're then assigned a second problem, which is that they're in a kitchen, um, and there's a pot on the stove already filled with water. And they're told to boil the water, so the chemist just turns the stove on and the water boils. The mathematician takes the pot, pours the water out, hangs the pot back on its hook, and says, now I've reduced it to the previous problem. Um, so that is, <laughs> that, those, those are geeky jokes. Um, there's also the one, how do you catch a tiger with a trap? Um, okay. Um, it depends who you are. Um, if you're a probability theorist, you say at any time there's always a positive probability that the tiger will be in the trap, so you just wait. Um, the uh, topologist just inverts the rest of the universe in the trap, um, just flips them, so it's all fine. Um, <laughs> I'm losing you. Everybody's walking out. Knock, knock. Who's there? No, forget it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay.
So the question is, how long do you have to wait to know whether a proton will decay or not? And there is a theory that protons will decay. There's another theory that they won't, that diamonds really are forever. And um, it could be that protons decay because things decay, although no one knows why in a classical sense things decay. Um, it seems to be a property of matter. No one knows why or quite what matter it's a property of. These are human questions that get raised. Um, and the idea that you can see something and, and tell by its half-life how long it will take to decay completely, um, that's also um, a kind of um, acceptance of induction, even without knowing the causal mechanism by which something decays. Okay, so Kant comes along and he says that he read Hume and Hume, in a very famous phrase, Kant says, Hume awoke me from my dogmatic slumbers. So that's Kant's famous reaction to Hume. Hume awoke me from my dogmatic slumbers. And Kant read Hume and said, it's really a scandal that no one has been able to show um, how we can know things after Hume has shown that we can't. And so Kant then dedicated himself in what's called the critical project um, to answering Hume. And the critical project consists of the three critiques, as they're called, um, as he called them, the critique of pure reason, the critique of practical reason, which most people, if they know nothing about it, think, oh, yeah, that's how to figure out which subway line to take, but it's not. Um, in fact, Kant um, thought of calling the critique of practical reason the critique of pure practical reason, um, but ended up not doing that for reasons that he explains. But practical because reason... Because of reasons. <laughs> um, no, it's because practical isn't meaning um, just figuring out, you know, using 22 sevens as a good approximation of pi. Um, practical means what to do. So pure reason is how to understand, how understanding is possible. Um, practical reason is what should we do as moral beings. Are we moral beings? And what should we do as moral beings? And then what's often, often called the third critique, the third one that he wrote, and sometimes simply the one called the third critique, is also the critique of judgment. And the first half of the critique of judgment is Kant talking about aesthetic judgment. That is, how we think of how we decide that something or how we respond to something as beautiful, how we respond to something as sublime. And Kant says that these three critiques, or Kant shows that these three critiques are all connected to each other. Um, one is how we understand the world. The second is what should we do in this world? And the third is, how do we judge the world? If people know who Hannah Arendt is, she's most famous for a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem. Um, the last thing she wrote was a trilogy of which she only wrote the first two volumes and barely sketched the third. The, thr the trilogy has the names, the three volumes in the trilogy are Thinking, Willing, Judging. 
and thinking, willing, and judging are Arendt um, essentially doing an exposition of the questions that Kant raises. So the critique of pure reason is how we think or understand the world, how we think about the world. The critique of practical reason is what should we do, and the critique of judgment is how do we judge, and they're all connected to each other. Now, in the critique of pure reason, the first and possibly most important thing that Kant wants to do is to defend the category of causation, which Hume had so demolished. Kant wants to say there is such a thing as an idea of causation which is as legitimate as our ideas of space and time. Hume never, ever, ever thought that space was an illusion or time was an illusion. For him, that just wasn't an issue. The external world might be an illusion, but Hume didn't, t didn't take on the categories of space and time um, as abstractions. Kant does. So the really hard thing in Kant for novices, but I think a thing that's much easier after you read Neuromancer, and especially if you read Neuromancer before reading Kant, is his idea that the thing in itself, famous um, phrase in Kant, the ding an sich, the thing in itself, is neither spatial nor temporal that space and time are not qualities of the real world, and here I'm using real world casually, um, not qualities of actual reality, um, but only things, only ways that reality comes to our minds, to human minds. Um, the word Kant uses is empirical, and the empirical world that's the world we live in and where we do stuff every day. The empirical world is the world as disclosed to us by our senses. And Kant says that world, it's not an illusion, but it's not not an illusion either. It's rather how we experience actual, the actual, what actually exists, actual things which are neither spatial nor temporal. So that was an extremely hard thing for Kant's readers to understand, an extremely hard insight in Kant, but much easier if you think about it in terms of the non-existence of cyberspace. Cyberspace is not a real space, not a real metric, not something that you can measure in any real way. Cyberspace is rather the um, structure by which we um, can have information organized for us when we're surfing the web, for example. Yeah. What did Einstein say about Kant? Um, Einstein. Because I don't think he could necessarily refute that. He, I mean, what is he showing? He's showing laws that describe our perception of the things that really are. Yeah, now if I recall correctly, um, Einstein thought, thought Kant had a lot of really important things to say, and then some, he also thought some of it was bullshit, as a lot of philosophers do, as a lot of scientists do about philosophy. Um, but Einstein was uh, more interested in Spinoza than in Kant. 
um, and th thought of himself as being a, a being um, Spinoza like. But there are a lot of similarities between Spinoza and Kant. Spinoza, in a lot of ways, um, uh, is a forerunner of Kant's. Um, but there is something explicit that Einstein said, which I now can't remember, um, so I don't want to get it wrong. Um, but the basic idea is that um, space and time exist because we experience them. So if Descartes says, I think, therefore I am, um, Kant can go further than that. He's actually dubious about the I part in I think, therefore I am. Um, he doesn't think that you that the thinking I can do anything except think about thinking, and it can't think about the I that's doing the thinking because it can only think about something that it's a step away from. Just as the as the organ, the I that you see with, can't see itself, the ich, the I, the ego, can't actually think about itself because it can't think about how it's thinking about itself. Um, Kant has a name for this, our feeling that we're at the very limit of our own experience, um, which he calls the transcendental unity of apperception. But he basically says you can never quite get that in your mind because your mind is always the thing thinking about that. And that's something in the mind rather than the mind itself. Um, so he's dubious about the I part in I think, therefore, I am. But the thinking part, that thinking is occurring. And that, therefore, some kind <coughs> of being is occurring. That part he takes from Descartes. And what he says basically is, there's no reason that there should be space. However, there is space. Only look and you see that you have a visual field. And in that visual field, the laws of geometry more or less apply. More or less apply because, in fact, it's not a perfectly flat visual field. But let's just say, um, because it doesn't make any difference to say this, um, that the reason we can understand a Euclidean proof is because we all have the same intuition of space. Now, that intuition of space is where every object presents itself. The way we see things is spatially. But the intuition of space is the channel or portal or screen by which reality manifests itself to us. And there's no, since space comes in the mind, since space is the screen, it's not what's projected onto the screen. It's rather how things appear to us. So again, if that's confusing, just think of cyberspace, and in particular, think of case jacked into cyberspace, where data turns into architecture, where data turns into spaces that you can move around in. So Kant calls that a synthetic a priori. And the idea of a synthetic a priori is a huge and revolutionary move that Kant makes. The a priori, traditionally, means what is true prior to any experience. So logic is an a priori science. We talked a little bit about this when we were doing Hilbert. 
Logic is an a priori science. It, you don't need any experience to know that certain things are true. That they would be what's called a priori true. Synthetic was almost always used as synonymous with something that wasn't a priori true. It's where you had an experience and you put stuff together. You saw that the evening star never appeared at the same time on the same day that the morning star appeared. And after a while, you put together that they were the same thing, that there was one planet that sometimes appeared in the evening and sometimes appeared in the morning. And that was a synthetic discovery. You saw two things in the world, and you saw then that those two things could be connected with each other. And that, right. Um, so that's, a, or, or um, Batman and Bruce Wayne, whom everyone figures out. Um, so that's a synthetic idea. Kant says there is actually something which doesn't come to you through experience, and yet it requires experience for you to know it. There are two things like that, space and time. Because if you had no experience or if your experience were purely mathematical, like the computers, you wouldn't know about space. You wouldn't have an intuition of space. Space itself would be, not be something that you could perceive. You wouldn't have perceived it. However, space belongs entirely to perception. So. It requires experience to have an intuition of space, but not the experience of anything. It's rather the portal of experience that for us is spatial. And because the portal of that experience is spatial, there is this thing that comes to us prior to any experience, but which nevertheless only comes when we have experience in general and that space, and time as well. That is time as succession. So Kant says there are these two things that are different from all other a priori things in that they require experience, and different from all experiences in that they don't require any particular experience. And they stand right at the edge between the a priori and the empirical world. They are the channels by which we perceive the empirical world. Again, you can see a little bit how this is coming out of Spinoza, who says that all things have an infinite number of different attributes, but we, the only attributes we are able to perceive are those of thought and extension. Um, and Spinoza says there are an infinite number of different other true things about everything, but the human mind isn't constituted to know them. All we have are thought and extension. So Kant, therefore, has this idea of space and time. And here's where he makes his amazing move, which is to say, all our spatial experience is an experience that we have in time, because we're always in time. So there is no experience of space. with Human beings do not have an experience of space without time. We don't have an experience of time without space. To be a human and to have any experience at all is always to be having an experience which is simultaneously spatial and temporal. 
Now, remember when we talked about paradoxes of imperceptibility? That is, the watch and the watch a millionth of a second later, or the clock and the clock a millionth of a second later, and the clock a millionth of a second after that. And could we tell the difference between the hour hands in those three, in photos of clocks taken a millionth of a second apart? Um, and if the differences were imperceptible, how could we ever see a perceptible difference? And I suggested one answer to that, which was that, in fact, given any two pictures, no matter how alike they are, even given the same picture twice, we'll always see differences. Because we see things differently in the world in every pulse beat. We see things differently when our heart is beating from when it's not beating. We see things differently. Our visual experience changes when we inhale from when we exhale. Our visual experience is different at the beginning of an inhalation from what it is at the end of an inhalation. Yeah? Would that suggest just difference is also of perception and not of... Well, it, the, the point is that the, blooming buzz, the booming, buzzing confusion is something that we are experiencing it every microsecond of our lives. Um, as some of you know, our eyes are always doing what are called microsaccades. That is, our eyes are always moving a little bit. Um, your eyes are never entirely still. If they're immobilized, as they can be by curare, um, there are, you probably know about some of these experiments where people's eyes are actually immobilized um, for surgery, usually. Say what? Um, if you show someone, I mean, th this, th this is really interesting. I mean, the, the classic experiment, this is a riff on the classic experiment. Classic experiment is you put someone in a completely dark room and cover one eye um, and then, sh then show a pinpoint of light on a screen and ask them to show the light moving. And everyone will trace the motion of the light. Everyone will trace it differently, but everyone will trace the motion of the light. And then it'll turn out the light hasn't moved at all. And what's happened is the eye has moved. Um, and it's just the little flickerings of the eye that we are um, projecting onto motion. We do this all the time, but the reason that you're not seeing this move is because you know the blackboard isn't moving. And if you didn't know that, then you would be seeing the blackboard moving constantly. You've all had that experience of being in a plane, right? where um, you're not sure whether you're finally, you've timed it, you're sure you're within, it's not going to be more than another 18 hours, but it probably will be at least another 15 minutes. But then finally you see some motion, and you think, oh, good, but no, it turns out it's just another plane coming in. Um, so we make assumptions about what we're seeing, and we say that certain things aren't moving. And then we peg other things to what we assume is still. But if you don't know whether something is moving or not, if you really don't know, your eyes won't tell you. It requires you to know something about the thing you're looking at to see it as still. Now, what you know is so basic and so obvious that we do see things as still. Um, generally, the bigger it is, the more likely it is, um, the more likely we're going to think that it's still, but not 
always. Um, so the point is, again, that we are always experiencing a flux of perception, to use another phrase from Kant. Um, everything is always moving in our visual field, but in our brain processing, what we do is we discount motions that are small enough, and we assume they're simply coming from our own unstable perceiving. Rather, you know, so, so we have a way of stabilizing the visual field through neural processing, not because the visual field is stable when it hits the retina. It's not. Yeah. Uh, the example of the, the diagram, no, because this doesn't happen at a, you might be able to convince yourself a little bit, but it doesn't happen at a level under conscious control. This is all pre-conscious processing that this occurs in. Um, and also proprioceptive processing. So, you know, the reason that You've all had the experience of having no idea that something is still. It's very easy to give yourself that experience, even with a blackboard, which is just get up and spin around fast five times. And if you get yourself dizzy, the room will whirl. And the reason it will whirl is that part of the um, processing, part of the mental processing that stabilizes what you're seeing is the vestibular system. That is, you're comparing what you're seeing to what's going on in your inner ear. And if you disturb what's going on in your inner ear, your inner ear will conflict with what your eyes are seeing, and your inner ear will tell you that your head is moving even when it's still. That's what getting dizzy does, is it convinces your brain that you're moving even though you're being still. And therefore, when you see things that are um, moving with you, you see them as moving. And that's how getting dizzy will screw up what you're seeing, which, if you think about it, should be a hard question. Why, when you get dizzy, does the room whirl when you stop? Why you feel sick? Okay, yeah, you, you screwed yourself up somehow. Um, but why is everything whirling around you? Well, the answer is that visual perception actually requires vestibular um, it, it's part of a, the vestibular system is part of that. Um, that's also why um, you're supposed to sit down if you go see an action movie on, um, in IMAX um, because it totally conflicts with, what you're seeing conflicts with your vestibular system. When you see a movie on a screen, the screen itself is incredibly helpful to you for knowing that that motion isn't motion that you're going through. You you're always checking the corners of the screen. Again, mentally, your brain is doing that. But if you go to IMAX, you don't have something to check against. And that's why IMAX can be so vertiginous. It's also why 3D movies can be vertiginous. Um, so, what this was Kant who basically first figured this out. Not in terms of vestibular system, but in terms of how we process what we see. Yeah? Uh, you never said what we're done with people who have their eyes Oh, well, they, no, they see it a lot more. Um, that is, they're expecting micro saccades all the time. They're expecting their eyes to be constantly twitching as, the, as they do. And so they basically see the world going, 
because, I mean, I'm told, I don't know, um, because their eyes are, this is the first time in anyone's life that their eyes are perfectly still. And having your eyes perfectly still means the world looks like it's constantly not doing what it usually does. Um, so what Kant, Kant's example is look at a house and look at a boat. And if you look at a house and if you look at a boat, in both cases you're seeing things changing all the time. Because remember, although Kant doesn't put it this way, but remember foveal vision, we talked about this before, is only 2% of the visual field. That is, when you look at something, when you look at this blackboard, the reason you can look at native am and first at the n in native and then at the, or the A in native, and the capital A in am, you can look at these two letters because your foveal vision is directed right at them, whereas the whole blackboard is just kind of a broken down um, mosaic of bits of blackboard that your brain says is a whole blackboard. So, but you're only looking at the letter. If you try really hard to concentrate on what you're not looking at, but that's surrounding this word, so concentrate on it without looking at it, the way you could concentrate on what you see in peripheral vision without looking at it, um, it's just broken down into little bits of black against a kind of nondescript, black, uh, nondescript background. And what we're always doing is putting our visual fields together. But the actual experience is you look only at one thing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you go look at a Jackson Pollock, like mm -hmm. Roma, I tried this one time I went, like you just pick like one dot like on the canvas and you just really concentrate on it, your brain eventually will just fill in the rest yes. of it in the same pattern. Right. And then you, you move your eyes slightly and then the painting's back to where it was. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, and a lot of op art actually depends on stuff like that. But Jackson Pollock in, in particular, um, Jasper Johns also. Um, yeah, that's really neat. Um, all right, so Kant says you look at a house, and no one looks at a house. What they look at is a window, a door, the roof, another window, back to the door, um, and you put it together in your brain as a house. Then you look at a boat, and what you see is the prow and the, and the sail and so on, and you put it together as a boat. And the boat is moving downstream, and the house isn't. But all our perception is perception of motion. That is, every time we look at things, we are the pure visual record is moving. So how do we know that the boat is moving and the house isn't? And Kant says the answer is that we feel as part of the possibility of perception itself that we are the cause of the motion in our perception of the house. That I look at the roof, then I look at the door, then I look at the window. And every time I look at something, I'm the one who's causing the change in motion. Whereas when we look at the boat, we're not causing the change in the motion of the boat. So that the category of cause, says Kant, is necessary to the most basic perception 
of objects in the world that we have. Now again, Neuromancer is about this. So think of SimStim. Someone define it? Yeah? When, is, is that when he, has, he looks through uh, Molly's eyes? Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and it's also what everyone is doing on the various um, equivalents of TV shows. That is, you're having the sexual experience of the rich and famous, and the, isn't that great? Um, but then he's hooked up to Molly. He's piggybacking on Molly in SimStim. And um, Gibson is just really good at describing those moments when Case wants to look one way, but Molly looks a different way and just how jarring those moments are. That is, that, that um, what's happening is his idea of perception is that he exercises his will in what he wants to be looking at. But Molly is actually in control of the perception. It's her will that's determining what's perceived. So the question, could SimStim really work, is an interesting one because it could very well be, in fact it frequently is the case in movies, that we would confuse the motion of the camera person, let's call her, like Molly, um, with the motion of the thing that she's seeing. So if she's looking at something, and the thing she's looking at is in constant flux, Case might think, oh, that constant flux is occurring because that thing is moving, whereas Molly might know that the constant flux is occurring because she's looking all around it. Now, this is, yeah. Yeah, if you have relative motions to check yourself with, you could check yourself. Um, and here we just get to the somewhat more familiar, um, but still extremely high craft of movie making because this is something that camera people in films have to deal with all the time, um, which is how to indicate motion, how to indicate what's moving, how not to confuse an audience. And um, in fact, if you ever take a course in animation or um, just look into animation at all, this is a huge thing within animation, are the rules for um, how you show motion to an audience in animation. Um, animation, there's several different techniques for animation. Some of it is that the camera moves. Um, but if a camera is moving, for example, I mean, just think of, of the cheapest and cheesiest animation. Um, yeah? Beauty and the Beast has the, the um, shot of them dancing. Yeah. Which was revolutionary. So. Right. Because that was the picture. They were changing the picture while the camera was moving as well. Right, exactly. Um, so sometimes the camera is moving, sometimes the thing that it's filming is moving, sometimes the way um, you, show the mo you show motion is to have the camera move but to act as though the camera is still and that something else is moving the other direction. Sometimes to show the motion of a viewer, you'll actually move the background um, <coughs> but make it look as though the viewer is moving rather than the background. Um, this is true of process shots also, if you know what those are. Process shots are when there's a background projected behind an actor. Like when people are driving in movies, frequently they're just sitting there in a studio um, and the background is changing. 
but we in the movie theater perceive it as the background is what they're moving against. The background is stable and they're moving, um, whereas in fact it's the background that's moving and they're stable. Um, so these are so these Kantian ideas. I mean, I actually believe that Hollywood film rediscovered all of Kant's ideas in very practical terms, ideas about space, time, and motion in very practical terms. And it's really helpful to think about Kant through filmmaking, um, but even more helpful, I think, to think about Kant through Neuromancer. Um, so all of those things Kant puts together to say that we actually do have, we need an idea of cause in order for us to have any experience whatever, in order to have any coherent experience whatever. We need to know when we are the cause of motion, and we need to know when we're not the cause of motion. And we need to be able to distinguish between them so that the idea of experience itself requires the idea of cause. That's Kant's first major step in the critique of pure reason. Um, the critique of practical reason, just to get you up to, up to Kantian speed, the critique of practical reason is not how do I perceive the world and make it, organize it into categories that make sense, um, but it's, so what should I do? Um, what should I believe? And Kant basically comes up with the argument, I can't believe I'm trying to give you all of Kant for five minutes, but that's okay. Um, everything has to start with five minutes. Um, Kant basically says, if you think about morality, what he's shown in the Critique of Pure Reason is that you can't either prove or disprove the existence of God. Um, and, he, and he shows that um, with some pretty powerful arguments. Um, but it's very important to him that you can't prove the existence of God. Um, in the Critique of Practical Reason, he now um, asks, so what should you do as a moral being? Those of you who disliked Pascal might actually love Kant. Um, because he certainly doesn't agree that you should do it on the basis of a wager. Um, his idea that you would do anything on the basis of reward and punishment, he thinks that's terrible. And in fact, the critique of aesthetic judgment is an argument against doing things because of reward or punishment. Um, he says, beauty, the reason that we perceive things as beautiful has nothing to do with the fact that it's rewarding to do so. Um, and the fact that we make these judgments without thinking of them in terms of reward is really crucial to understanding um, the moral capacities of the human mind. Um, so what he talks, his famous definition of the judgment of beauty in the critique of aesthetic judgment is that it's disinterested pleasure. We have no interest in the pleasure we take from something beautiful. Um, and, that, and that mark of disinterestedness is for him really, really important. Um, so in the Critique of Practical Reason, his question is, so morally, what should we do? And he says, it's clear that the very idea of morality and of what goodness would be under any conception would require free will. If you didn't have free will, there could be no such thing as goodness. Do we have free will? Well, in the critique of pure reason, he's shown that you can't prove it either way. 
that the arguments against free will and the arguments for free will are at a perfect standoff. And not only that, but they're completely consistent with each other. The same argument that says you have free will is completely consistent with another argument that says you don't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and Kant accepts that from Hume. Right. Hume's um, doctrine of compatibility. Right. Yeah. Nice. Well, like Hume says that it, it's all about some. It's it's what our, oh, like the idea of free will is from our semantics because, like, it's true that like we don't have <laughs> we don't have like like we can't really make um, a decision or or we don't really have like necessarily a choice in what we call a choice. But like, but we do by making a decision, make a decision. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Hume, this is this is a typically human argument. One of the great things about Hume is that all his arguments, um, you can get an amazing amount of a single paragraph of Hume, and often his best arguments are only two or three paragraphs long. His argument about free will is basically: if someone <coughs> says to me um, that not everything that I do is determined by um, everything that's already come before. I have no idea what they're talking about. Of course it is. Someone tells, says to me that I don't have free will. I don't have any idea what they're talking about. I can't understand what they mean because of course I have free will. So basically it turns it into a question of you couldn't understand a claim that you don't have free will and you also couldn't understand a claim that um, you're not determined by everything that's come before. Um, neither of those claims are understandable. And so this is a doctrine known as compatibilism, which is the idea of determinism and the idea of free will are perfectly compatible with each other. Um, if I raise my arm because I want to, I, I did it of my own free will. Um, if I raise my arm because of um, some combination of chemical neurotransmitters based on um, what Joy just said, yeah, that's obviously true too. So both those things are true. Hume essentially accepts, I mean Kant essentially accepts that. Okay, we will talk more about this on Wednesday. Um, I think I'll just send you then the, the uh, poem which you should read for Wednesday as well.